0: Welcome to another episode of Top Lines and Tales, where I'm your host, Dr. Bob Hope, this week, and uh, I'm your guest host. And we are once again thankful for our sponsorship from Harbro, manufacturers of high quality nutrition. My guest this week is someone quite well known to all the listeners of this podcast. He's a stockman, fitter, entrepreneur who's provided solutions for livestock producers from fitting supplies to management software. A prolific author. A Livestock historian of the first degree, connoisseur of fine wines, if you've ever uh, done three podcasts in a row with him in the evening, you will definitely find that out. And he also fits the bill as one of our industry's characters. And most of all, he's a good friend. Andy Frazier, welcome.
1: <laughs> Bob, that's some intro. Is that really me there? <laughs>
0: no, I believe that is. Well,
1: you it? got the wine bit right anyway. Well, good morning. <laughs> good morning to you, Bob, and to everybody there. It's uh, it's so nice to be on the other side of the fence for a change. And uh, Bob will probably explain a little bit more why uh, why he's there and I'm here.
0: Well, we, we have a lot of chores to do because we're going to cover Jack Dick. And uh, and I mean, it's a fascinating story. So I mean, I'd like to just get right at it, if you don't mind, uh, because uh, I mean, the, I mean, there's just a lot to tell about it. And gosh, how did you come about uh, getting your curiosity about Jack Dick? And-
1: I discovered him when I was researching for uh, the history of the Angus cattle in a book that I was writing in the UK, and this guy that tipped turning up at the bull sales and throwing money about. And the more I looked at him and spoke to a few people that had met him as well, his story started to fascinate me to the point that I thought, wow, that'll make a great movie. So uh, eventually after, after I finished that, that job, I just did a bit more research and uh, ended up writing a book about him.
0: I mean, he was a complex man. That's for darn sure. Now he, I mean, he was, he worked his way through college, right? I mean, he was a smart sucker right out of the beginning.
1: He certainly um, did. Certainly did. He bankrolled himself through, through college and uh, even had some change when he left there. He was a, as you said, one confident son of a bitch and he, uh, he, he started at, at Syracuse University. Um, but with a card, running a card school, and uh, he was pretty damn good at that. And him and a few of his buddies would find some rich students and let them win a few hands of poker and, and let them get in front. And then before absolutely cleaning them out and just walking away with the profits, which he'd give a little bit back to his pals. But he put the rest of it in his pocket for his next scheme, <laughs> some effort. And then, and then he would use the chemistry lab at, at Syracuse to make illegal hooch, which uh, he'd, he'd sell through a few contacts downtown and of course this is this is post post-war mid-50s and Syracuse was home to a lot of war veterans back then and th- they'd have a taste for the hooch I guess and it would be fairly cheap and uh Jack had a racket doing that which I think got him in a bit of t- trouble with uh, eventually with the university but he took his way out of it and and then he happened on a guy who sold um army surplus from a nearby air base and and Jack Dick got into to a racket um peddling kitchenware out right, by mail order and again using some of his pals around about the place and uh, selling cups and plates and anything he could get his hands on really he, he got the reputation to be known as Jack the Peddler and uh, honestly the front this guy had, uh, you couldn't make it up there
0: Bob. I guess not, it's uh, quite quite a thing I didn't, uh, I the only thing I gambled my way through college was on my grades <laughs> but that, that's quite a way to make your way through school and you know obviously I've read your your book it's a great book and but uh he ran away from home when he was younger didn't
1: he He, he did that was before he went to university when he was at school and i think he went through school fairly easily and everything was just a breeze to him because he was so smart and then one day he got fed up with it i don't quite know whether he fell out with his family or, or what and he took off and he'd only be 15 or 16 years old i guess and he headed off Across uh, Connecticut countryside and, and happened on a small farm and, and just, uh, went in there and they gave him a job. So he, he worked away on the farm for, for a few, a few months. And I think that's where he got his love of livestock. And of course, the, the great outdoors and Jack dreamt big. He even back then, he, he, he dreamt big.
0: And I thought he was there for even longer than that. I thought he was there for a while at that farm until they caught up with him. Then then so, his parents finally track him down.
1: I think it took his mother a while to track him down. She was a bit sort of high society in New York, and uh, she was uh, they were looking for him. But, yeah, you're right, he kept his head down. I don't no idea actually how long he was there, but certainly... Uh, long enough to to, to, uh, to people just come and start finding him, which they did eventually came in and tracked him down.
0: Um, and then he went to work for his dad, didn't he, he was in the furniture business? That doesn't sound like Jack Dick from what I know.
1: Of. Well, it, it, his father had a fairly sustainable, good little business, I suppose. And again, he had come through, started this pre-war and after the war, there'd be a boom wouldn't there of americans wanted to better themselves and oh you know, yes and and jack had his furniture business kitchens i think he was doing which hey, is still money in that business to this to this day but the likes of sears catalogues would be booming around about that time i guess and americans just wanted to the, the best you know the best and jack's father's little business running out of the back end of new jersey there would be fine supplying locally but uh, once Jack got his teeth into, of course, it just the thing just needed marketing, and you know, that was Jack's speciality. But uh, and and the thing boomed, and his father, his father hadn't got that same vision. And as soon as Jack got involved, I think the turnover trebled of the business in the first few years, and. Uh, he got a team of guys out there selling the stuff door to door, knocking on doors and walking in, and with glossy catalogues and half naked ladies lying in the bath. And they just took it the modern way, really. And and yeah, it absolutely boomed. And and, and off he went. His first, not his first venture, but his first uh, business venture, maybe.
0: That that all makes sense. But I mean, that would be a pretty small uh, pond for for Jack, from <laughs> what I know. So I could see him moving on. He went on to the stock market, which that's that's going out of a small pond into a big.
1: Certainly a big right? yeah. certainly a big leap but i think i think he just got bored with mundane households and household stuff and selling to the general public and he always thought he was smarter than everybody else and he'd see the stockbrokers going around the place and all talking the stories and meet up with him in the pubs and the clubs and he just thought he was smarter than them so he'd he'd buy and sell a few stocks while he was sitting in his office he'd buy and sell a few stocks just he'd find in, in the newspaper and uh started to make away with that and then it got him more and more interested and he realized that they uh, could that he that he maybe was smarter in a lot of ways and but he was certainly greedy and I think that's probably a failing of a lot of megalomaniac uh, entrepreneurs you, you've got to temper that greed a little bit but he he liked to gamble, and uh, and he was smart enough to choose the right odds. And uh, yeah, sure enough, he got into the stock market. And uh, next thing, they where, who, where's this whisker come from? And he just uh, he just started overtaking everybody else and, and selling everybody the dream and the story. And wow, he, he made it big very quick.
0: And but uh, I mean, it, it, did he it catch up with him eventually? That he was, he, wasn't he kind of turning out people's money? I mean, just investing, investing other people's money into another person's money and, uh, I mean, did, he, did it implode on him eventually? Well,
1: you got to remember this guy is a very, very clever guy, but it, he could understand the complications, a complicated mind maybe. And, uh, yeah, they did catch up with him, but he'd made $12 million in in one year in, in the middle 50s, which is
0: – Oh, it is. Uh, but uh, it,
1: it was an impossible to decipher what trading he'd been doing because it was so complicated. And basically, yeah, he was borrowing from one bank to finance his loans in, loans in another one and then buying stocks here and forward Selling it over there on the understanding he could he could buy it, not pay for mm-hmm. it for, for a week because he got the banks running around, uh, uh, loaning each other on it. And then he, he'd sell it on and make a profit before he'd even paid for it. And, and it, it's known in the business as kiting and it is illegal, but uh, it's only illegal if, if, if you get found out. And eventually he, he was, when you made $12 million in one year, somebody somebody's going to notice Bob and, and they, they, <laughs> they, they they saw him all right. And, and he... He nearly got it wrapped up as well. He, he, on his last deal, I think he put all his money into buying one a steel company, and, uh, which would actually have been something bona fide rather than just the stocks. But, uh, yeah, they caught him and they took his license, and uh, he couldn't trade his way out of that anymore. And, yeah, it did. It crashed around him, as you said, imploded. And at the time, he was living in a swanky Manhattan apartment with a butler and, and living the high life. And uh, I think when they took his license and he couldn't trade his way through it, broke, it broke his spirit a little bit for, for a while.
0: How old would he have been at that point?
1: So yeah, he'd be in his early twenties, there, Bob.
0: In your early twenties, and to and to figure out how to do that shell game, you know, with the different corporations and stuff. Gosh, that's got that's living fast and young. But you know, I wrote a chapter on on some of these these things in the cattle business in that Shorthorn book, and some of these people would have. 150 shell companies. I mean, it was was one of the most confusing things I've ever written, trying to figure out. I mean, these people were smart. I mean, too smart for their own good, but I mean, gosh, uh, they were clever. But then he moved to the cattle business. What a switch. I mean, gosh, a New York City... A uh, high life you know uh manhattan guy going going out and gonna get, get in the cattle business well how the, the heck did that happen
1: you, you have to wonder don't you and it must as i said heart back to the days when he he had been out there on the farm and what he called a, a mar and pa business so with it with a little local ideas and he'd been there and, and thought well a bit like he, he thought he was smarter than the than the uh the stockbrokers he certainly thought he was smarter than all the farmers and i think he'd obviously dreamt about this and on some of his bad days when he was he couldn't afford a taxi to get down to speak to his lawyers in downtown new york and he'd he'd walk the whole five miles in, in the morning and i think he just dreamt up this idea that uh he could just get himself together and and get out of the city and get out into the into the countryside and um, farming would be an easier outdoor life for him uh, for him and and um he somehow raised money to buy a farm through his brother-in-law um his wife linda's uh, family were, were fairly wealthy and he talked his brother-in-law to putting up the money and he bought the farm from bing crosby's brother the singer bing crosby's brother down there in duchess county and and it wasn't cheap either it wasn't like he just bought a little place it was a it was a hell of a spread and he bought it and that's you know where, where he, he was at there and his dreams as soon as he got there of course his his dreams just got bigger again and uh Crazy, I think you'd probably say, to be fair. A lot of people would do anyway.
0: Well, I mean, people uh, can't imagine what Dutchess County was like in that period of time because that was the center of, of really the world seed stock industry at that point in time mm-hmm. because all the people, it was just north of New York City and they all had their states, you know, the Roosevelt's, and the, I mean, everybody, and it was a beautiful county, and everybody centralized in this one county, and gosh, I mean, he 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 went right to the heart. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And yeah, he wouldn't have gotten a cheap place up there. He would. They were some grand estates up there. So. uh but he went right to the right to the right place, and so so he got he got up there and he got a place. and And how did he get going?
1: Well, as you said, he'd gone in there with with the right people. He he knew how to rub shoulders with the right folk and the people who could do him well. And I guess moving into that area would have been a a status thing. And he'd already had his mind set on doing something about it and having a you know, having that smart. Uh, outfit there in amongst everybody else's um as you said the top seed stock uh, uh he decided he was gonna gonna get going and to start with he went back to college to learn about genetics and hun- husbandry which is i find quite surprising because he doesn't seem the sort of man that would uh, sit behind a desk and and, and and listen to a lecture for very long but uh i guess when he was there he'd have made a made a share of contacts and then he'd work out i think he bought all the managed to get all the angus uh, journals shipped over from from scotland the aberdeen angus journals over there and all the papers and he'd sit and read it all up and he did his research and decided uh, angus cattle was something he'd like to get into and and the, the leachman brothers i know would be high profile angus breeders back then and and uh, he'd seek their advice i guess but i'm not sure just how much uh, advice Lester and, and um, Lee would would give him to be fair but uh, he certainly knew the bright people to ask
0: well I mean they, they I mean they were kind of everywhere there you could go and rub elbows bows with you know the who's who of, of Angus or most any breed and and he sought out a top manager and I you know one of these things in these and these folks that get into the what eventually ends up being a scheme one of the things when i've done my research is is they've always hired really top people yeah the man people that, that are really have a lot of uh credibility and he did that didn't he
1: so, something we've discussed on top lines and tails podcast in the past is that the the smart guys they they seek out the, the manager who knows the animals and knows the stuff and, and they can they can learn from and bounce from but as you said in this case he he got uh gar douglas and um would have been a fantastic appointment as farm manager. I can't quite remember where his credentials uh, came to. I think it may have been through the Leachmans. And uh, anyway, Gar turned up and he gave him the the job as managing the farm. So uh, still a fairly small affair at that time. But uh, it must have been a hard sell for for, for Gar to buy, really, because um, Jack at that time wasn't even allowed to sign checks at that point. And in fact, it ended up being uh, Gar's wife, patty uh who told us just as much that uh it was it was her that signed the checks on on uh, on the behalf of the, the farm and he said this is the yeah the farm manager's wife
0: oh gee so you you spoke to her and, and and that's the way they started out that that would have been a hard sell to to go into a place where the the person hiring you you can't sign checks but exactly. he must have been a salesman
1: exactly that and we did speak to her Patty's still on the go and and um when i originally looked at this i shared the research of of, of uh, jack dick with a colleague of mine in washington and he just picked up the phone to quite a few people and found his way through the research and uh, one day he found himself on the phone to, to patty and i've got the recording here somewhere and, yeah she said just as much that uh, she said dick just came along and said right you're you're, you're writing you're signing these checks and it's like well as I said, we went with, with my colleague in there, we were planning on writing the whole story as a film. And I still am, to be fair, for one of these days, maybe they still will make a film.
0: Well, I think it would be compelling, that's for sure. And uh, and then when he got into Angus, uh, now tell me how he, I mean, he named it Black Watch. I mean, what, how did he get actually into it? Because, I mean, he, he didn't have much equity, right? But he started out pretty splashy didn't he? he he wouldn't have any any
1: equity i don't think at this time um mm-hmm. only what he'd borrowed and loans that he'd managed to find and let, getting a loan wouldn't be very good when you've just been you know um struck off the stock market for for kite trading at 12 <laughs> billion dollars the banks weren't weren't too keen on coming down his channel but he he would talk a few people in and yes uh, it was called black watch farms uh, it, this was in 1961 and he wanted something a bit more scottish to make his sales pitch sound uh, sound more convincing
0: well isn't Blackwatch a famous Scottish regiment? Of course, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, this just, just for our Americans. I just I just I thought that was the case. And uh, and it was it was about taxes though, wasn't it? Wasn't that his his sales pitch that he could give people get investors in?
1: It was exactly about taxes, Bob, you're dead right. And it was it was very simple it certainly started out very simple where investors and don't forget for all jack might have, have, have fallen off the stock market uh, he, uh, um, traders he still would have made a few people a lot of money and he'd have a lot of guys out there that uh, he'd go back to these investors and say right guys this is the next way we're going to make some money um, and he persuades these investors to put money into literally buying a couple of cows and having them well looked after and they could reap the profits from the sale of the calves at the low tax rates and we'll touch on the taxes in a minute but with a neat bit of marketing I think I might have even invested in that one It certainly sounded convincing to start with
0: but but it, it turned bad right I mean it wasn't very long where he started kind of dealing off the bottom of the deck a little bit it, it got in a little dirty in terms of the way he was dealing these cattle I think as everything with
1: Jack Dick touched uh, it, it went brilliantly because he had so much confidence in it, but it, I think it was down to the greed, really. He he, he wouldn't want to just do it you know, half-heartedly. He'd want to grow very quickly, and he'd want the, the best animals and want to make the best top dollar and and make the headlines. And, of course, that in turn would, would bring in these high-profile investors that he needed to start putting some cash into the outfit to grow it.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I, one of the things that also that when I've researched this area uh, these folks would have the best cattle that you could possibly have, and they would also have some of the lowest cattle you could possibly have that they could really value at. But they had to have a core of really good cattle to you know to show off, and uh, and he must have must have put together a core. Although that probably wasn't, he probably had a lot of cattle that were pretty low priced that he could sell at quite a profit. I'm guessing. Uh, I
1: think that when we get into the actual quality of the cattle, to start with, he would have had quality cattle, and I think uh, Douglas would have been picking out the quality cattle, and his advisors, who they be, uh, would have said, like, we need these quality cattle. And he would start with quality cattle, because the people that were coming in to start with, into his scheme, would be coming into a blind scheme, and therefore run a tour of the smarter ones, thinking, well, you know, we, we, we're not too sure about this, this Jack deck guy, so they might send a few people in and get a look at those cattle. So to start with, I think the cattle would be good. And then, of course grabbing the headlines and that's when he headed to scotland and started throwing his his money around at the the the, the, the sales in scotland of course which which um would, would bring him some headlines and well uh, yeah
0: perth at perth didn't he it was it's 1963 where i mean he shook the world up didn't
1: he he did yeah i mean he went to Perth in scotland in 63 with the intention of buying the most expensive bulls he could find and we've talked to people on this podcast that nobody goes to a sale wanting to spend more money than they need to. But I think in Jack's case, he probably did. And because he's using other folks, money, it, it would, um, that would be easier to spend. And, uh, and he did make the headlines. The fact that, uh, he had no money of his own; never bothered him at all. And I believe, uh, and this is from from a, a, a good source, that the the bill for the station hotel in Perth in 1963 never got paid to this day. So he didn't; he wasn't too keen on paying that. Chilling had his own money on his on his expenses.
0: <laughs> but didn't he set a record for what he's he bought the the bull uh, out of the Perth sale that year? He,
1: he did. Yeah, he bought a bull in, in in 1963 for sixty thousand guineas, which I think back then there'd be three dollars to the Guinea, so we're talking american terms 150 and 180 thousand bucks a bull called lynn the Vols and uh he was the record price angus bull then and believe it or not it's still the record price angus bull ever sold at the uk auction 60 years later
0: wow and uh, so yeah i mean there was bidders against him so uh, how did they i mean how did he settle on this bull that uh i mean obviously this was a, a bull that had some go to him uh uh, did he have some advisors there, or was, was Herman judging that year, Herman Purdy? No,
1: Herman wasn't judging. Herman had judged a year earlier, but uh, Herman Purdy, but Herman would be there on that trip, I think, as with the Leachman boys and, and a good few others back then. It was quite fashionable for Americans to come over to the, the bull sales before you know, Jack Dix. You know, in the 50s, the guys would be coming over buying bulls and bulls and, and, and was Angus and Shorthorn's I guess and uh, so he'd have his share of advisors and he'd quiz them all day long and, and you know, Bob Adam, the great Bob Adam from Newhouse had judged the Bulls that year but uh, never gave this particular Bull champion which uh, it's slightly controversial i think because he was quite young the bull was only 10 or 11 months so maybe he was young enough to, not to get into the championships but he got a first prize and then afterwards um the story is that bob bob adam then had tried to buy a bull so uh, maybe he didn't put it champion because uh, he thought it might be cheaper and exactly how much money really changed hands for in a i think we'll probably never know but uh, it's there in the record books and uh, and Bob would end up being a mentor to, to Jack Dick in those early days and would have sold him a, a few females and uh, would have seen Bob, a great businessman that he was, would have seen Dick for for what he was a, a, a man bringing him some money, much needed money in, into his pocket.
0: Tell us, uh, this ball had a kind of a a big splash, but not a good ending,
1: did he? Uh. There's a great story behind Evulse, really. I just incidentally mention that uh, that Lindert is farmer breeding Angus cattle again now. Uh, Sir Toko Munro's uh, grandson, Tom Hotkinson, uh, breeding Angus there now and doing a great job. Uh, Tom and uh, but going back to Evolse, of because yeah, he did. Uh, he he grabbed all the headlines. The bull was semen tested in the uk and then shipped to ireland for a few weeks in quarantine which i guess they needed back then before his flight to usa uh, and when he landed at jfk airport jack had the entire world's press all waiting there on the runway and in and in, uh, in, in with the cameras and the news people and the tv crews and everything all trying to get a glimpse of this of this bull that he'd bigged up and and, and made, paid this World record prize for, and they, they actually rolled out a red carpet, believe it or not, when the plane landed off the back of the plane. They rolled, I've seen the photographs, rolled the red carpet, and Lindy, he became called Lindy in in, in America, and he walked down this red carpet to the, all these flashing cameras like some sort of film star. It was incredible. publicity stunt and then uh, they loaded him into the back of a um of a brink's uh, security wagon which he just about fitting <laughs> fit i guess through the back door and then
0: uh, <laughs> so an armored car yeah what, what, what? and, and okay. Off,
1: okay. off they went at great speed with with a with a cavalcade of, of of motorbike outriders on the front and the back and the lights all flashing and all the the the, 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 the Newshounds all frantically writing their story, and uh, and yeah, it was fantastic marketing, and he made the front page, show just pretty much all around the world. And then you'd think well, that's a great story, but the story didn't end there, Bob, as you said, because. Um, the bull turned out, sadly, to be infertile. And nobody really knew the full story of, of that one. I've heard various um, different ideas on that one, but uh, to do with maybe drugs that he'd been given when, when he'd been in Ireland and, and one or two other things. But anyway, the bull turned out unfer- infertile, which to most people would be a disaster. But uh, you know, to Jack, he just saw there's another opportunity coming here. And uh, completely undeterred, he managed to claim the full amount of, of, the, of the sale price back from... Lloyds of London insurance so he claimed back his 60,000 that he'd spent or assumingly spent and then uh, uh, and then he bought the bull back off the insurance company for one dollar uh, so okay. he, he still owned the bull although he's infertile he bought him back because he wanted to keep him I think as a as a sort of publicity machine still oh, going mm-hmm. to advertise his and then they um they tried then. I suppose the whole American news, if not the world news, had, had all picked up this sob story about poor Lindy and he was he was infertile. And he had a massive following from the from the public and there's newspaper prints if you go back and find them. Are, and but Jack then went on and tried to have the bull's fertility reinstated, which was an incredible ballsy move again from him. And uh, using the very best vets down down in the deep south, uh, he took the bull down there, and he, the bull had a five or six hour operation. And again, all the press were waiting outside for for um, Lindy to come out and start <laughs> serving a few cows when he came out the door, which uh, sadly he never did, and uh, the operation never worked. But Eventually, I think after a few years they kept him um, and a and Fraser the, the auctioneer from Perth remembers seeing him as an older bull and saying he actually grew into quite a reasonable sized bull because the photos, if you look at him were you yeah, know he was he looked very very small. but anyway, he met his fate at a couple of years old and uh, it was probably the world's most expensive uh, beef burgers.
0: I guess so well he only cost a dollar in the end I, I guess you know the interesting thing though is how history repeats itself because well, the first time that Black Angus came over in uh, Aberdeen Angus and uh, a splash was at the American Fast Stock Show at the American Royal and they took they brought a steer over called Black Prince and they took it they got him through quarantine they took an express train to the uh, to to the show and they got all these people out with kilts and, and uh, bagpipes and they had Galloways and some other steers. They had Black prints weighed 2,300 pounds. He had been a champion over in the uk and they paraded him around the entire outside of the stockyards <laughs> and made one of the biggest splashes uh there ever was it's still all through the literature of that time so so i guess jack dick was just doing it with armored cars at this point yeah, <laughs> so it,
1: he, he, <laughs> whatever anybody else had done jack was out to do it better that was for sure <laughs>
0: there, there you go So uh, so they went back to perth and, and went through it all again and i mean kept kept going back right yeah Investing. he did in
1: fact the next three years he went back to person bought the top price bull every year and how he managed to pick out the top price bull one would start to question that it, that he would find somebody to bid it up to make sure it was the top price bull and again only here say i know but in 1964 he bought a cedium of duneside another great bull that was a good story behind uh, for another day and he came in at fifty four thousand guineas in another price price that's yet to be beaten in a, a uk auction to this day but and jack would go over there as well um black was probably just getting going in the 60s in the early 60s when he went and jack would uh, uh would also be very keen on buying into sporting art and he'd buy a few paintings and things round about while he was there as well but maybe go on to that uh, a little bit later
0: i i would if we have time i i think that's really a fascinating thing on his what he collected for art is amazing but let's let's finish up some more on the cattle though and and kind of get through that because uh now he he bought some more bulls, high price bulls, the U.S., including a wide bull one of our podcasts, if I remember. So he was making a splash around the United States too, Rosny. He?
1: Yeah, he was, and he also sort sought, sought out where the other some of the other Perth champions had gone, and and uh, he bought a bull escort of Manor Hill, who, strange enough, had been the champion that uh, year before, and then I think he picked up Elevator Eastfield as well, who'd been a record price bull in his day from. Tom Brewis, there, who had ended up out there in the States, and he bought him as a three-year-old. And I think he had one time he, re- he claimed to had three or or four Perth champions in 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 his yard. And again, of course, that stuff that uh, that would bring in the headlines and bring in the investors.
0: Oh, geez, yes, uh, that I mean that would that would be a big big deal. I mean, uh, Scottish cattle were. Th- that was the end all at that time oh. and i mean he threw a great big party in 64 for these investors didn't he <laughs>
1: he certainly did uh, bob and it's a party i think i'd have loved to be at as well and i'll give it a bit description for it and i think everybody else would think god i wish i was on that invite list it was a hot ticket anyway and uh, he he knew how to woo the rich and famous it was it was what he did that was just that was jack's way and, and particularly their wives in many cases who especially when they're looking at these Pretty cattle, and they don't know much about. He, he'd be, he'd be wooing them, and he knew how to sell that story. That's for sure, and. Uh- he hired four massive big top circus marquees huge things and then positioned uh, put set them up in around the barns and then positioned all the bulls and, and the sale cattle around the outside behind perspex screens so they could all the cattle were looking in uh, and these guys are partying on the inside of these guys and they're all in their, in their best attire and and they and all these guests five, 600 of them and more were all dined on Angus beef that had been shouldered into the room by, by behind a Scottish piper and, and, uh, and these bulls all looking in watching him eating. What a spectacle. Can you, can you imagine that? <laughs> no,
0: I, you know, I, I'll tell you, I've never, never have seen that kind of thing. I, but I, when I was in grad school at a university kinetic at UConn, uh, which is not far from there, uh, you know, things were still rolling. Nothing like what you just said, but it was, if you wanted a cheap party for a weekend, you would go to one of these sales and they would have wine and dine have dances and oyster bars. So if you were on a low-budget grad student, you could uh, you could live pretty high just by going to sales. So, g- so they, it was some different time. <laughs> All right, so they, so he he's moved through and I mean, he's really whining and dining people. Yeah, I mean, he, he,
1: he'd know who held the purse strings in every couple. I mean, the, the, the invites weren't by accident. The invites went to people that he knew that he could work around and, and uh and he would he'd work the room with stories of investments and pointing at the prime buys and taking the ladies out to go and see these particular animals and you know and, and the party went on till the early hours of the morning and then uh the next morning the guests were all met by breakfast which was a bloody mary and it was served out of a cattle drinking trough i mean <laughs> the guy really went to town with this uh with this this party and then because the sale day would, day would come the next day a few hangovers with it as well and this sale had been so bigged up that people were clambering to get in to get a bid and it's genius really and you'd think this is ma it was made up I mean I, it's not I know a few Scotsmen that were there and, and they were the likes of Tom Todd who bred uh, Escort of Manor Hill and Perth Auctioneer that I mentioned just now Rowley Fraser who told me this tale firsthand really and Dick was later questioned about his extravagance, and, and, he, and he said, and I quote, that if spending 50 grand on a party and then selling a million pounds worth of beef is extravagant, then I'm, I'm guilty as hell. <laughs> You're dead, right, Bob? You've got to spend a little to get a lot. <laughs> uh,
0: you, you know, there was a bartender that worked that circuit. Uh-huh. that's what he did for a living really? he worked that sales circuit yeah. of those rich people so he like the ringmen and the bartender and the auctioneer i mean they all came as a group they're all in so yeah. it was, They're all in yeah, together. It different, different times so uh, how was he profitable uh i mean he's expanding quickly at this point right i mean th- tell me about his expansion and how how this worked and um
1: as with any megalomaniac businessman, if I can call him that, the business grew far too fast and, and investors were coming in all the time and Dick just kept buying more cows and, and from everywhere. And unfortunately, not all of them were, were good ones, as you alluded to early on. And in some of the cases, the, the cows weren't even there at all. They were just a, a piece of paper and a number and uh, and farms too. He'd be, he'd be buying or, or leasing and renting farms above market value because he was cash cash rich they, these were his these were his cash cows
0: so these were his cash cows. so he was he overvaluing him is that one of the ways he was making the getting so much money in or how how, how exactly was it working
1: okay well, let's let's the, we can get down mm-hmm. into the cattle detail on this a little bit because we are on a Cattle podcast.
0: It would be really interesting to dig down and find out how this did work.
1: I think the buy in was around about $10,000 to get three or four heifers, depending on what you read, and which the investor then officially owned. Uh, and mm-hmm. then some of them might have been worth that, uh, uh, but a lot of them weren't. So there's sort of scam number one that he's selling them something for probably five to three or four times its market value. And now they need looking after at at, at a percentage of their worth. So the more. The more money they, 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 cost, and the more money they, they would cost the, the investor to keep. And the, I think the contract was four years, and, uh, investor would have to pay for the keep and the cowboys and the feed and everything else that went in there. And, and round numbers, that's probably another, gonna cost them another 10,000. So there's, there's scan num- number two there. The guys are into 20 grand before they've seen anything. Uh, and then they put in calf at a, at a cost to a high profile sire, and they calf maybe a heifer, which, either adds to the investor's portfolio or uh, or can be sold and if it's sold it's probably be usual to another punter who's going to pay top dollar for it as well and and uh, or a bull calf will be put up for sale and, and the investor would receive a, a fraction of the price of the actual resale and being told maybe the calf wasn't good enough or it died or it got butchered or what have you a lot of people would uh, that'd be scam number three they'd get to uh, you know, they'd get picked off with that one and then Meanwhile, of course, the whole herd just keeps regenerating more of these, these cash cows, and anybody wanting their money out would be hit with exorbitant depreciation values, plus the cost of the keep and the legal contracts and the lawyers, and by the time they came to pull the money out, it would be barely worth it, so you know, they'd they, they find out their investment wasn't very good, so that's scam, scam number four, if you like, and then... In the end, some in, even enjoyed losing money. I think it was such a conversation piece to have your money in these cattle schemes that it almost became fashionable. And in the books, the company would write everything down at top dollar. And, of course, Dick would then siphon some of the cash out the back door for his for his own gain. So you're being scammed again. I think if you put five scams in a row there, I think your money going in the front door is not going to come out very, very healthily at the back one, Bob.
0: Well, you know, and, and uh, you know, I don't mean to get into our tax laws, but I, I studied that area when I wrote that book, and and they if they put their money in, and st- if we were at a seventy percent tax bracket at that point, and then if they could if they could uh, expense it out at a much lower tax rate. Than the seventy percent by the investment. Losing money in some cases was very beneficial to yeah. these people.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean that, that was the goal was to lose some money.
1: Well the goal, the, the, goal for, the goal for Dick, we find somebody who'll give you some money and not want it back. I think that's probably what you're
0: saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's right. And uh who were all these investors? Uh
1: that's so that's a a long list and hey it's probably a lot of people will never be privy to but uh, many of them wanted to remain anonymous of course to, to the tax man or or when things got a bit sticky wanted to disassociate themselves very quickly from from Dick so I need to be careful not to name and shame here but there were singers um famous actors uh famous politicians any number of senators and and that went right the way up to the white house and, and uh, uh top sportsmen and Mobsters. It was like a who's who, Bob. I mean, it, I named a few of them in my book, but I don't think I'll pull them all, put them all down here for uh, yeah. for, for the right reasons.
0: Uh, you know, one of the things, and in our terms of our cattle industry, was that these these tax shelters. You know, these people coming in that knew nothing about the cattle industry. They were, the, the easiest thing to sell them was fats, mm-hmm. and that was really a negative for our industry. Whether it was belt buckle or frame race or, or, or Scottish, you yeah. know, buying Scottish bloodlines. So so they were they were prone to one-dimensional types of uh, in, uh, selling things to them. And that wasn't the complete kind of animals that we necessarily le- needed leading our industry. So, I mean, how did that affect uh, things over in, in the United Kingdom? Because you were servicing. Uh, our market that was these one dimensional things.
1: Absolutely, but uh, there was also tax, sh- tax shelters have been around for years, let's face it, and, but I think they probably reached their heights in the mid 60s and we'll see they sort of faded out later on. But um, they- explain what a tax shelter is I suppose the schemes where mid to high rate taxpayers who had been taxed at 70% of their income could do what they call a passive investment into certain industries. For example, they could invest without actually being hands-on, and they were positively encouraged um, as they were deemed to be helping the economy, as you said. And the purebred stock, of course, had uh, had a great marketplace for this, at major shows on both sides of the Atlantic. And there's Hundreds of high-profile investors on record, really, that uh, have put their money into there, uh, and going back into the thirties and forties and fifties in, in, in Britain and, and Scotland, there were some very high-profile names who put their money into farms um, again because they wanted the headlines and they wanted to do well, but yeah, mainly because uh, yeah, they, they they were they were dodging the tax and they were doing it legally, which um, yeah, there's no fault in that one
0: the tax laws encouraged the investment back in the economy was the idea and so they so he got up to a huge number of cows didn't he well i
1: think jack just just did his marketing a bit better than everybody else and and yeah he did i mean by 1966 so we're only talking a period of three years i think it was somewhere around sixty thousand head of angus he'd got all across america and 50 different sites in a dozen states and uh, it became one hell of an operation and, and to grow that fast you just you look at it now and you think well you know somebody maybe should have smelt that one as well
0: no no kidding and and, and it just got too big it, it bloated it under its own weight or what happened
1: i think things had been wrong for for i wouldn't say from the outset but for for a while before then anyway with a few investors not getting the rewards that they were promised and and coming around and, and realizing they couldn't pull their initial sum back out and there'd be a few uh heavyweights on that list and uh hey we talked about mobsters earlier on there'd probably be guys coming packing hardware as well so jack would have to do a bit of juggling but uh again it just seemed to wash over him and, and he would talk his way talk his way out of that but the sheer numbers as you said would be would be mind-blowing really eventually they'd got a computer and and learned how to work it but even then to have thousands of cows with hundreds of different owners owners of the cows and the calves and bulls that had been used and bulls that had been sold and It'd be near impossible. In fact, it would be impossible to keep a track of it today. Let alone back then, when you got, uh, well, you got, well, you got a few books and then maybe just a small computer.
0: And they were spread all over the United States, weren't they? Yeah, I mean they were everywhere. And then, but he he managed to sell the business thing. I think Jack always had
1: his eye on the on the exit, and that had. Eluded him maybe the time before that he'd just caught him before he managed to, to to bail out if you like and uh he needed to time it just right but again I think maybe greed got the better of him or maybe just the 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 speed of everything snowballing so fast got the better of him but yeah he'd agreed to to agreed a deal to sell the entire company to a company called Burmec and they were a truck leasing company and a massive outfit leasing trucks and, and and rail cars across across America and he'd agreed to deal at 30 million to sell this and the deal was nearly done and uh, they went and sent somebody around to have a look at his books and his computer and I think uh, somebody that came around knew a bit more about cows than he was anticipating and what they found was a whole load of baloney not to put too fine a point on it and some huge gaps in the fields where cows should have been and gaps in the in the books where stock should have been and a lot of stock not worth a fraction of what it was written down as and and the scam just exposed itself really and uh, jack never had a chance to run fast enough to, to to bail out
0: and then the whole i mean this was after jack but then the the this whole tax thing ended for our industry at one point and then he uh, he got caught here, and so he he was kind of in a pickle. But, you know, eventually in 86, Ronald Reagan eliminated all these tax breaks and gosh that that drastically changed the industry learned, because all the, investors went away
1: i've learned a lot of that from yourself bob and your great book about the short on history you've got a great chapter on there if anybody gets chance to to read that and you're right they did. i think what reagan did is he he lowered the high tax brackets to, down to something more reasonable and because he lowered that down then he, did, he decided that uh, there was so many loopholes that people were getting by that yeah they he did away with the, with the tax shelters and as you said it did uh, at a time when when the industry in in, in the u.s particularly in, in the mid 80s was was starting to go through the mill and uh, i did it gave it a good kick in the ass, and uh, took a while to recover i think
0: well i mean just uh, i can just tell you a very very quick story at college many of the people were being trained when i was in school to be a manager of these high, high price places mm-hmm and that went away i mean that just disappeared Well, and, and that whole career disappeared and and universities don't don't train those people anymore It just all changed a uh, completely different industry we went from selling females to bulls i mean everything changed so it was i mean it was and then some of the jack dick kind of things are what changed it what got, got congress moving but let's get back to jack and and because I mean, some say he was sort of the originator of the Ponzi scheme, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, So tell tell me about that.
1: Well, a Ponzi scheme basically is when people are buying into something on a promise that's never actually there. I don't quite know what the, what the dictionary definition is, but that's kind of how I see it. It requires new investments coming in all the time to keep the previous investors happy, basically. So you get a new guy coming in, bring his money, and you give it a little bit to the, the guy before as his interest, and, and the whole thing builds itself. But it's like building a house of cards when, of course, the scheme runs out of new investors so we get a bit of bad press and people stop bringing the money and the, the whole thing just implodes and just blows away on the wind.
0: And Bernie Madoff, who who was named after the Ponzi scheme, he was he in in the Jack Dick thing or did he get caught in it? <laughs> Bernie
1: did. And I think that's a great part of this story, to be fair, that the great Bernie Madoff, yeah, he took a hit of about 85 grand in 1965, which would be a fair chunk of money. And uh, but then Bernie Bernie saw what was going on, and he took that idea and 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 made it his own, as you said. And he made much more than that by taking that and reproducing it on a on a massive scale. I guess Jack Dick should take some take some credit for that, Bernie. If you're listening there, just uh, have a drink towards Jack.
0: <laughs> so what happened to Jack?
1: Well, Burmec sued him when they realized their 30 million investment was actually only worth three million they got the lawyers after him fairly quickly but uh, he'd been paid a lot of that in shares and as soon as he got his shares he went straight down the bank and cashed them in before the news got out of their real worth so he, he had the money in shares and so jack basically walked away with, it, with from the wholesale with a great pile of cash and uh, and and then he spent a hell of a lot of that on lawyers i think trying to keep bermack on, on the back foot or keep him off his back and and also the tax man off his back because of the money he'd made made and, and not declared and then just about every other person in the u.s off his back as well i think and it wouldn't be an easy next few years but it just seemed to wash over i mean you think this guy's just been caught with his pants down and, and yet he's walked away smelling of roses and instead of giving up he went and bought a 40 bedroom mansion called done hall in connecticut from a guy who once owned the new york yankees and he considered continued to hold lavish parties and lived a high life uh, um, bob is it's just an amazing guy
0: wow wow and then he, and then he got into i mean he was into sporting art right yeah. this wonderful british art from the uh 19th century and uh i i mean I, I have a friend that collects that type of art and he said that he moved that entire market i mean he shifted he was such a player in it he shifted that entire market in, uh, for decades uh, it's, and it's, what, what was going on there?
1: It's the measure of the man though isn't it? I mean he just didn't do things by halves. he realised that a lot of these old sporting prints that people had got them tucked away and they were stuck on walls in old country homes and what have you and as they came up there he would buy them. To start with I think he was buying pictures of cows because he liked cows and then he took some advice as he would do from the right, the smart people and uh, and realised that uh, it was the horse pictures were where it was at and then again right place right time right idea he was started buying these prints buy them in, in at auctions in britain and uh as you said, 18th, 19th century paintings of of horses. And the profit there, again, was huge. And he'd buy low and smart and in a rising market. In fact, he bought, at one time, well, he bought so many pieces of fine art. And some of this would still be when Black Watch was going and some afterwards. But he bought so many pieces of fine art that um, the British authorities uh, tried to stop him by Saying you're not allowed to, we're only allowed to ship so many pieces of art out of the country. And they tried to bankrupt him in actual fact. They tried all sorts of schemes, but uh, Jack was too clever for them, and he still kept buying these pictures off them and uh, and taking them back home and adorning them on the walls in his in his lovely mansion.
0: There was rumors that some of it was counterfeit. that he counterfeited Did that was that ever true? I
1: don't think Jack would be buying counterfeit. And again, a lot of this is hearsay, and and, and need to be but careful. He
0: counterfeited But
1: but I I'm pretty certain when the creditors did start come knocking at the door, he'd come would send. Them Away with a piece of priceless art that's maybe worth fifty or a hundred thousand, and off they'd go. And uh, in some cases, some of that maybe maybe wasn't real. And and there's a lot of stories there again. And I I can't be too careful, really. But that uh, that business, I'm afraid, has its core of corruption, just like any other. And Jack would see the way to to make it work for him.
0: But he finally had to sell that out too, didn't he? Yeah, he did. In
1: 1974, his, his collection came under the hammer at Sotheby's in London, and they'd the american tax office and the british tax office authorities had 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 an agreement that if the paintings were to be sold they'd have to be sold in London and not in the US and um, yeah they were sold in Sotheby's in 64 in a great sale which a lot of the rich and famous again the collectors were at and, and it still goes down in folklore this particular sale and a painting called Goldfinger which was by the great George Stubbs um, who was then and still is the high, most highly sought after um, sporting artist and uh, Goldfinger made 200,000 in, in 1974 Then Jack Jackie given about 50 grand for it so yeah he'd made his money on that one and a lot more besides and that was a record at the time of course and uh, uh, but the Sotheby auctioneers were instructed to try and keep as many of the buyers and uh, the paintings in the UK as possible so they didn't find their way back into the States again incidentally that painting central I think it was Whistlejacket actually is, is another painting of Stubbs is that uh, sold just recently for something like 40 odd million so I mean the, the stuff is still is still valuable to this day somebody's still buying it Hopefully the rea- oh, hopefully well, the, the real ones.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean the art is, art over there is wonderful from that period. And if I could name just two websites, if people want to go in and, and and you can Google or search by the this type of art, uh, Art UK is a wonderful site, and Yale Center for British Art is another wonderful site. And you can download some of these images too. And, Gosh, there's just some gorgeous art on there. So if you, anybody wants to go surf around and see see this beautiful art, th- those are two good sources.
1: I know you collect them sporting art, don't you? Bob? I collect seascapes myself. for uh, we got we got a house by the coast there, and I I collect seascapes on the wall. So I mean, there's something nice about collecting art and looking at it. But uh, I'm not into that kind of price bracket. I don't know if you are or not.
0: No, I'm not in that kind of type, uh, price bracket either. But I also have I have eight thousand images stored, electronic images stored on my computer. So wow. I have a bit of the collection, and then I have I have everything I can get out. My wife will let me out, hang on the wall, so, <laughs> uh, but not not that price range at all. But no. <laughs> I'm more into prints. Uh, but but what happened to J- Jack in the end? What was the final outcome? I mean, he. He didn't last long, did
1: he? He didn't, and the the, the ending's almost uh, sad, really. I mean, Jack was sitting in his club in Manhattan, this is uh, after I think they'd sold his paintings and, and taken all the pictures off his wall and, in his house, and he was sitting there boasting about how money was made round to go round, and the next time he was going to make, I think he said something like he made a million when he was 20, and... 10 million by the time he was 30 and now he's going to shoot for 100 million by the time he was 40 and uh boasting away and then uh, he clutched his chest and and uh and died on the way to hospital of a heart attack at just 40 years old so a man who did more things in in, in one lifetime than most people could do in five but that's the official story anyway and i think there's some speculation that uh he may have pissed off one or two many of those uh those bad guys, and uh, maybe somebody caught up with him, but uh, we'll never know the full story on on that one. But uh, yeah, that that that's the great Jack Dick, and and uh, what a story!
0: Well, you know, Tom Burke always thought that there's a possibility that he's still alive somewhere. <laughs> uh, you know, I so think you if he's still
1: still alive, I think somebody would know about it by now. He, he probably bought the Empire State Building three times and sold it off <laughs> for scrap. <laughs>
0: You you have a book on this, right? To be too commercial here, but
1: uh, well, for you a, have a pretty good book. For all, Jack Dick wasn't, you know, he was a charlatan. I, I just think he was admiral in so many ways, which is sort of why we're doing this podcast. And I don't think anybody's ever come near what he did in, in the cattle world. A few have tried, obviously, but this isn't an advert for my book. But yeah, if you want to Google my book, um, Cash Cow by Andy Fraser, you'll find it there on Amazon somewhere in one format or another. And um I hope you find it enjoyable, and uh, if there's any film promoters out there, well, give me a call to discuss the film script, because I think this would make one hell of a great film.
0: You know, it really is an interesting story, and I think it's important that we understand these aspects of our industry. You know, we did have a a chapter on this in our Shorthorn book, because it it is part of our history, And, and if we don't understand our history, we're bound to repeat it. And so we need to learn from our mistakes, and we need to learn from our successes. And and these kinds of things, I think, are important to visit. I'm glad we've taken this time. I'm glad you've taken this podcast, and um, it's been fun being host.
1: And uh, you're right, at, um, what you say, Bob. And of course, people like Jack Dick—they were milestones within the industry. And uh, and uh, during that time, I mean, the fact that it's pe- the price has never been repeated here sort of tells you just how far inflated some of these animals were and when the two bulls in that pen the one made 60,000 from um, Torquo Monroe from Lindertis and the other one made 180 guineas you realize just how how highly inflated some of these prices were so fascinating to talk about these milestones as you say Bob and uh, I I really appreciate you being host uh, this week and Bob you've been a great friend to the Top Lines and Tales podcast and uh it's been superb having you on there, and no doubt we'll uh, we'll catch up with you again on another podcast. And again, anybody who wants to read any of Bob's book, uh, Doctor Bob's book, look on our Facebook page. And uh, Bob, you've written more books than me, I think. A lot of them out there to choose from.
0: Uh, no, uh, you have the uh, title there. I I might write bigger books than you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm more in the coffee table business, and you 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 crank them out. Gosh,
1: you probably you probably uh, sell uh, a lot more uh, books than me. That's uh, what I meant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'll tell you what I I um uh, I just like writing them, and then I li- I like someone else marketing them. So okay. the research is the fun part. So anyway, you it's been great, and keep up the great work on doing this history and 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 digging into these kinds of things. It's it's important.
1: Brilliant. Well, Bob, thanks very much for for being my host, and uh, and thanks everybody for for listening in.
0: All right. Bye then.
1: Well, thank you for listening to a slightly different episode of Top Lines and Tales this week. And uh, as always, we're extremely thankful to Harbro for their sponsorship. And Harbro are suppliers and manufacturers of nutrition, and Nutritional Solutions. And during these times of uncertainty and spiraling input costs, uh, why not give Harbro a quick call and, and maybe have a chat through and see how they can help you keep things under control. So thank you, Harbro. And if you want more information on Harborough, of course, you can find them on harborough.co.uk or on Facebook. And with regards to the Top Lines and Tales, please tune into our Top Lines and Tales Facebook page where you'll find photographs and other documents to back up this episode and other episodes.